So Lindsay, thank you so much for being here. I was really, really looking forward to this conversation. Um, and before I touch kind of on why this topic is so important to me, I thought it would just be appropriate if you could just give a little quick introduction to yourself and kind of how you landed in this field. Yeah, absolutely. And first of all, thanks for having me. Like always open to having conversations about this because it is such an important topic. And of course, it's very near and dear to my heart. So a little bit about me. I've been a registered dietitian for 13 years now. Um, and I struggled with period loss with hypothalamic amenorrhea for a long period of that time. So long story short, I lost my period my senior year of high school um, through starting uh, a diet and doing a considerable amount of exercise and just not really understanding how severely I was under fueling for that amount of activity. Um, my body changed, I lost weight and I got a lot of compliments and reinforcement around the way that I look. And so that eventually spiraled into an eating disorder. I sought support, got recovery, got to way better place with my relationship with food and exercise, but still struggled with period loss. Um, so it wasn't until I started wanting to try for a baby that it really became kind of front and center. Um, and was kind of at a crossroads of, do I start IVF to potentially have this baby? I had had a close friend go through IVF in three years of infertility. So I knew a lot of like the emotional heartbreak, the financial investment, all of the things. And so started doing my own alternative research, learned about hypothalamic amenorrhea, like finally put a name to what I had um, and learned that it's actually correctable through proper nutrition, through lifestyle changes. And I was able to recover my period, get pregnant. I now have three kids. And now I help other women do the same. I love that. And I feel like a lot of times when people find an industry, it's because they've had an experience and kind of gone through something themselves that then inspire them to help others that might be going through it. So just to share a little bit of my story and why I feel so passionate about this conversation. Um, I was diagnosed with PCOS a few years ago, and I would venture to say it was probably a misdiagnosis. So I was a collegiate runner. I've probably had an inconsistent cycle for the better part of seven years. And specifically within the last two years, my cycle has been completely absent. So I feel like more women deal with HA than we realize. And I don't even think there's much of an education around it and what it is specifically. Um, so that's essentially why I just wanted to have this conversation just to kind of compare HA and PCOS and set some records straight, hopefully encourage women to find and stay the path of period recovery, myself included, because I think it's one thing to know what you have to do, but it's another thing to actually have the discipline and the heart to carry that out. Um, so yeah, I guess like to start, I would just love to kind of break down the basics, maybe build a little bit of a foundation for the audience out there. So what does a regular healthy cycle look like? Yeah. So a regular period is defined as a period that comes every 25 to 35 days, kind of a tight window. And if your cycle, you know, fluctuates between, you know, 28 days and 30 days, like that's totally normal, but we do want kind of that tight window, five day ish variation. Um, you should be bleeding for three to five days. It should be fresh, bright red blood. Um, and it should be pain-free, right? Like if you're having pain on your period to where even like taking Tylenol every single day isn't alleviating the pain, that is a problem. Um, and so if someone is struggling with a period that is very heavy, a period that is very light, um, a period that comes every 
60 to 90 days, or you get a period one month and then six months goes by and you don't have a period, that is abnormal or irregular. Okay. I also feel like just a side note, it's so hard to even recognize if you have a regular cycle just because of the third party factor of birth control, which I feel like makes the waters a little bit muddy and hard to identify. Um, So I feel like some women, you know, might have an irregular cycle or they might be regular, but you wouldn't know depending on your type of birth control. So that just throws a wrench in the system. And that's important to know because I work with so many people who come off the pill in hopes of starting their family and they realize that they have HA and we'll kind of get to talking. Well, when did you lose your period? And they're like, I have no idea because I have been on the pill for a decade and it potentially masked me not having a period for a decade. Yeah. I know personally, I came off of the pill probably like what I was on it freshman year. I'm now 26 years old. So that was, you know, some time ago. Um, And then I had the copper IUD, which isn't really supposed to like prevent you from getting a period. They actually say your periods are supposed to be heavier, but I still didn't like the idea of a foreign object being in my body, even though there was no hormones involved, which was intentional because I was done like effing with my hormones. Um, But I got that taken out probably like three years ago at this point. And so now I know like there Mm -hmm. is a root cause and that's why like I can't turn a blind eye any longer. I have to acknowledge that, you know, something's not right. Um, and that I just have an irregular cycle that I definitely need to address. Obviously hormones play a huge role. So just to kind of set the stage, can you just define like loosely what hormones are? And then maybe we'll just touch on from a high level, like the most important hormones for females. Yeah. So hormones are chemical messengers that send out different, you know, messages and can control body systems in our body, that kind of high level overview. And there's also different types of hormones. We talk about like insulin, we talk about estrogen, we talk about testosterone, but kind of your major players for the female menstrual cycle are going to be estrogen, progesterone, FSH, and LH. Um, when someone isn't getting their cycle or they're having some hormonal imbalance issues, those hormones are out of balance and they are going to fluctuate over the course of 26 days, 28 days, 38 days, however long your cycle is. But if you have something like HA, a lot of those hormone levels are just chronically low. And that might look like on a blood test, you're in like a pre or sorry, you're in like a menopausal range. And sometimes you will get blood work back that says everything is normal because you still fit this range. But when you look at things a little bit closer, you'll recognize, hey, I'm 26. My estrogen shouldn't be five. That's not normal for a 26 year old. Um, also too, sometimes people will have hormones that fit the normal for a follicular before you ovulate the first half of your cycle that will fit the range for um, where they should be for a follicular phase, but you never get to the point of ovulation. Um, so there's kind of like levels of severity of HA, but it's not uncommon to go to an OB, get um, labs done and be told your hormones are normal, but still very much have HA. Okay. And then when you think of HA versus PCOS, when a lot of clients come to you, do you find that there's a lot of misdiagnosis and PCOS is obviously hard because it's not like you can make it take a test and then it turns up positive, right? It's like (laughs) you kind of need to have the two out of the three, you know, check the boxes. Um, So do you find that there's a lot of misdiagnosis around that? 
Oh, totally. So I would say more than half of the clients that I work with get misdiagnosed with PCOS at some point. And to be fair, PCOS is statistically more common than HA. That being said, I think the reason why there is so much misdiagnosis comes down to the way PCOS is diagnosed. And that is based off of something called the Rotterdam criteria, which means you have to have two out of three of the following, a missing or irregular period, elevated androgens, um, and cysts on your ovaries. And newsflash, if you aren't getting your period, you will have some follicles, most likely around your ovaries. And you might have a lot of them if it has been a long time since you've had a cycle. And so it is not uncommon for someone to come into their doctor, have cysts on their ovaries and not have had a period in three to six months and get diagnosed with PCOS when in reality it is HA. So what would you say are like the most um, common symptoms of somebody battling with HA? Yeah. Um, a lot of times with HA, we're going to see like a lower basal body temperature. Now, if you don't take your basal body temperature, you're not going to know this, but you might feel cold all the time. You might be the person that always feels like you have to have a jacket on, even when it's 90 degrees outside. Um, we also see signs of low thyroid. So that might look like, like brittle, um, hair and nails, hair that won't grow, um, skin that's a little bit dry or dull. Um, lots of times, a lot of times too, with the under eating comes kind of like a slower, lower metabolism. So you might find that you don't eat a lot, but you're not losing weight. Um, or it's hard for you to maintain a weight that is, you know, the weight that you're at or the weight that you think is your goal weight. Um, also with HA, we see obviously signs of low estrogen. So if you were to have a bone scan done, it's not uncommon for people to be diagnosed with osteop osteopenia, even osteoporosis, if it's been a long time since they've had a cycle. Um, we see lowered blood pressure, lowered heart rate. We also sometimes see high cholesterol. Um, unfortunately, a lot of times when somebody goes for a physical exam with HA, other than the missing period, again, because most people 26 years old aren't getting bone scans done. Um, and most people, a lot of times doctors just aren't looking for this. And so a lot of women will get praise for, oh my gosh, your heart rate is so low. You're so fit. Wow. Your blood pressure is so great. Like you must be in fantastic health when in reality, some of these signs like a very low resting heart rate, like something in the forties is really more of a sign of under fueling, not necessarily a sign of a well-trained heart. And people just aren't like, like a lot of physicians aren't trained to really look at things that way. And so they're just going to be like, oh, the lower, the better. And they're so used to seeing patients with maybe higher heart rates. And so they're feel the need to comment and validate you. And so it's tricky to get the right diagnosis. Yeah, it is also hard because I feel like a lot of times like HI doesn't obviously happen overnight. There's a lot of like habits that are built over time and they like start off healthy. And so I feel like it's a very blurred line where exercising, for example, like you mentioned yourself, like went through kind of a stint of over-exercising. I absolutely did like throughout college when I was running competitively. So it's like you feel like you're doing the right things, but then you take it to extreme measures and it kind of like flips to then you're doing yourself a disservice and it's no longer making you better off doing it for the health of it. And it has the complete opposite effect. And I think that's also sometimes really hard to get through to people that what you think is like, you know, the standard of health really isn't in your specific case because it varies so much from person to person. And some people are more predispositioned to lose their period or, you know, be more sensitive to underfueling and overexercising. It's just like, it's so hard to kind of, um, 
understand you and your unique needs when other people have different tolerances for it. Definitely. And I think that that can be a big challenge in recovery is almost like that self-reflection and coming to a place of recognizing that, hey, this isn't healthy for me at this point in time. For sure. I don't want to get like too nitty gritty, but I am, you know, sometimes intrigued by like the science behind it. So just like some common labs when you are like under eating or missing your period, I kind of saw this on one of your posts. Mm-hmm. So like low estrogen, um, high cholesterol, like high cortisol, like those three are like the most um, interesting to me. Can you just kind of quickly touch on each one and like explain maybe why that might be showing up in the labs? Yeah. So low estrogen has to do with the fact that when you have HA, your body just shuts down the communication between your brain and your ovaries. So there is no stimulation for the brain to tell the ovaries to produce estrogen. And so that's why estrogen remains low. I mean, you're not having a cycle at all. And there is no signal to say, hey, we need to start making estrogen so that we can start growing a follicle so that we can ovulate like the whole communication pathway is shut down. So that is why estrogen remains low with HA. Um, You asked about cortisol. That one has a lot more to do with stress, um, physical stress from exercise, and then also like psychosocial stress through um, potentially eating disorder or just a poor damaged relationship with food. A lot of women with HA also tend to be very like high performing, perfectionistic. And so they just put more stress on themselves than another person would. And so when, you know, and a little bit of cortisol isn't bad, right? Like it's part of a stress response. It's a natural process in the body. But when somebody is engaging in a ton of high intensity exercise and someone is under fueling and someone is in a very high stress career or time during school, it's like just three double whammies that are causing your body to pump out tons of cortisol to where cortisol levels aren't dropping off as they are in a normal, healthy functioning body. And so we see that elevated as, as well. And then what was the third one that you were curious about? The high cholesterol. High cholesterol. Yes. Yes. And to be fair, I don't know that the science is super clear on this, but just having a background in biochemistry, um, this is the way that I make the most sense of it. So cholesterol, one of the functions of cholesterol in your body is to be a precursor for hormone synthesis. So one of the purposes of cholesterol is to make hormones. Now, if that communication pathway has been shut down and we are not making estrogen a lot of times with, um, HA, and this is a distinguishing factor, but from HA and PCOS is a lot of times testosterone is also low with, um, HA and that can be apparent in some physical symptoms like low sex drive. Um, and so when cholesterol isn't being used to make estrogen and testosterone, then we kind of have this extra cholesterol just hanging out in the bloodstream and that does show up on blood tests. Okay. So interesting. Um, in your content, I've seen you emphasize a lot how like restoring a healthy weight sometimes is not always enough to bring back a period. So can you just talk about why that might be? Yeah, definitely. Well, so a lot of times in like the eating disorder space, we talk about the idea of being weight restored and most clinicians will define that as achieving a BMI of at least 18.5 because everybody has such unique, different bodies um, and BMI doesn't take into account body fat, some people will reach a BMI of 18.5 or they will be air quotes weight restored if you're not watching the video portion, weight restored. Um, And that just might not be the right weight for their body. That may not be their genetic set point weight range where their body functions most optimally. So that's 
part one. Um, part two is that if you have been through period loss, your body has experienced some physical trauma and it needs more weight, more body fat to feel safe enough to turn on a system that could potentially bring a new life into the world. So our bodies are really smart and they're very protective. Um, reproduction is one of those nice to have, not necessary for life functions. And so when the body is undernourished, it starts to prioritize body functions that are going to keep you alive, like your heart pumping blood to your vital organs, um, not you making a baby. And so once that system has been shut down, the body is in protective mode and it takes a lot of energy and likely some weight gain, some fat gain over and above what might have been your previous cycle weight to bring your cycle back and to have a healthy regular ovulatory cycle. So then like you gain weight maybe above your natural set point to period restoration. And then like from there, are women then able to kind of not like reverse diet might be kind of a toxic term to call it, but to lose weight and find their set point. But it just kind of took going above it just for the body to feel overly safe um, and able to ovulate again. I would say it's different for every person. And I would also encourage you guys, whoever's listening, to think about set point weight as a range that is dynamic and changes over time. So it is very possible that your set point weight at 18 is not going to be your set point weight at 28, is not going to be your set point weight at 68. It is going to change over time. Um, there's also research to show that people can change their set point weight range. Like people that have a history of chronic dieting can, their bodies can just become very resistant to functioning at a lower weight. Cause again, they're in protective mode. They're trying to keep us alive. And so I would discourage against the idea of, okay, I'm going to put on this weight to get my period back. And then I can slowly work my way back down to that weight that I think I want to be. What I would just really, you know, speak some truth to whoever's listening and has that thought process is number one, know that that's normal. Everybody wants that. Everybody thinks that they can and should be able to do that. And while you have body autonomy and you totally can do that, you need to know that you're on the risk for losing your period again, if that's your strategy. Also too, it's important to know that the weight and body size that you're at currently when you're not getting your period is not a healthy weight and body size for you and your individual body. We've talked a lot about like the physical side of things. So like, I'm just curious, how much do you like think the mental side has to do with things? Like maybe you're at a healthy physical weight. And again, like who even knows? Because it's hard to find that natural like set point of like how much you should weigh. So I feel like it's all like a guessing game almost. But like for me personally, I guess I'll just use myself as the case. Like I feel like I'm at a healthy weight. Like in the last couple of months, I've actually gained weight and I'm like waiting and waiting. I'm trying to be patient to regain the cycle. But also I wonder if some of my old toxic thoughts and just Mm -hmm. like, you know, mental battles that I've been in before that kind of still affect me on the day to day, though they don't really dictate the actions and the amount that I eat and exercise anymore. Like I still feel like the mental side could be holding me back. So do you also believe that that plays a significant role? I can't speak to your specific situation, Carly, because I don't know you and like exactly what your recovery journey has looked like. But what I will tell you is what I typically see in the clients that I work with is that some of those subconscious thought patterns and 
neural pathways that are, or tapes rather, that are kind of playing in the back of your head, they can actually have a bigger impact on your behaviors with food and exercise than you may even realize. So like I have a lot of, I work with a lot of women who potentially have a fear of carbs. And so they start to eat more and they start to include some potatoes at their dinner um, or incorporate, you know, this, that, and the other back in, but they're portions are still really small. They still have very permissive um, rules around food where I can have this, but then I can't have that, or I can only have this on the weekends. And so what I find is that it just takes a lot of time and intentionality to undo the thought processes to where they aren't having any impact on our behaviors with food and movement. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up carbs because that was like my other question is, I know it's important to eat enough, but can you just speak a little bit further to the role that carbs play in just the female body in general and specifically with regaining a cycle, why they're so important? Yeah. Yeah. So there's an area in the brain that needs to sense a certain amount of glucose to begin increasing levels of FSH and LH two important hormones in your cycle in particular for ovulation. Um, and there's a research to suggest that, um, glucose levels, glucose levels are tightly tied to just this communication pathway and this process. And so if someone is eating a lot more, but they are still low carb or they are still restricting carbs, their body is probably still not getting the right message about energy availability to support ovulation. The other thing I wanted to ask you about was fiber. I saw that on one of your posts, why too much fiber might be contributing to a missing period. And again, fiber is like something that everybody, every doctor will tell you, make sure you're eating enough fiber. It keeps you regular, but you know, too much of a good thing can be a bad thing. So can you just dive into that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's definitely like the Goldilocks scenario, right? So like the answer is not eat no fiber, just like the answer isn't eat a hundred grams of fiber. Um, there's research that kind of touched upon this idea that fiber can support estrogen detox pathways, um, which would make sense that if someone's under consuming fiber, they could potentially be dealing with an estrogen dominance issue. And if they were over consuming, then that could lead to low estrogen levels. I don't think that like scientifically that actually makes sense. What more of the research really suggests is that the overconsumption of fiber just causes you to under consume vital nutrients to support the energy demands of getting your period back and ovulating regularly. Okay. That makes sense. Um, in terms of like timing of eating, I feel like there's a lot of glamorization around intermittent fasting. And for one, I guess, like what's the ideal demographic that intermittent fasting would work for and how that might impact females' hormones, specifically somebody that would want to get a regular cycle? Yeah. I mean, I think initially a lot of the research was done in men. So we were basically not even looking at how fasting might affect female hormones, female reproduction, all the things. Um, there's plenty of research now that shows that fasting alone can lead to irregular menstrual cycles and potentially full-blown amenorrhea, even if you aren't an active person. Like again, and this is going to go back to a little bit of like bio individuality, right? Like some people can follow a low carb diet and never see any changes in their cycle. And then some people are going to see that right away. Um, so it's not right for everybody. There is like some very like newer research suggesting that it can be helpful for some people with PCOS, but if you already struggle with under fueling and over exercising, fasting is not going to be doing you any favors. Yeah. I feel like I've seen it a lot in the space of like, um, insulin sensitivity, like giving your body a break, because if you're constantly inundating it 
with food, it never re- – like your blood sugar could stay elevated or something. But then like if you go too long without eating, your blood sugar levels can like drop a lot and they drop overnight. So you already kind of wake up in – you know, a state of high cortisol. So you're supposed to eat breakfast early. It's very confusing <laughs> because confusing. there's so much out there. Yeah. I don't, two things here. I don't think that we have all the answers and it will be different for each person. Um, also too, I think it's really important that we think about what we read about in research, how that can be applied in real life. Because even if somebody, even if fasting does help someone's insulin resistance, which then helps them to ovulate regularly and have a cycle, what is the sustainability of that? And what is the fasting doing to their mental state, their relationship with food? And what we see a lot of times with people who are doing intermittent fasting is reactive binging. And that's definitely not beneficial for um, insulin resistance and blood sugar regulation. Can we just dive into like some tips and tricks, like just lifestyle changes, whether it be caffeine, alcohol, exercise, um, like we just kind of mentioned timing of food, like getting into the habit of eating breakfast, like generally things that a female could do to help support a healthy regular cycle. Yeah. I mean, I think eating regularly and eating enough is really important. And again, those are relative terms. Um, I usually tell people to not go longer than four or five hours without eating, regardless of what their cycle looks like, just because that's going to give your body more energy, especially if you're active, that's super important. Um, And making sure you've got some good variety in your meals, right? Making sure that you're including all three major macronutrients, carbohydrates, protein, and fat at every single meal. I do see a lot of females try to skimp on carbs or feel like they only need to have one meal a day with carbs. And carbs are super important, especially I'm assuming we have a lot of active women listening. Um, Those are like your superstar. Those are like your power for performing well, um, you know, physically and mentally. And they are your body's preferred fuel source during exercise. Exercise. So skipping on carbs is just really not doing anybody any favors. Um, and then other lifestyle things, sleep is so important. So very important. I cannot tell you the number of people that I work with that are skimping by on five or six hours of sleep and their hormones are toast. I mean, it's just so bad for your body. And so you really have to think about your health holistically and recognizing that getting in a workout on five hours of sleep is probably doing more damage to your body than benefit. Yeah. Can you talk about low intensity versus high intensity? I think everybody has different definitions of this, but I consider high intensity, anything that's really getting your heart rate above hundred to 120 beats per minute. Um, so that's going to probably be what a lot of people just consider to be exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, low intensity would be things like walking, yoga, mat Pilates, um, bar classes, depending upon the specific bar class, but those lower intensity exercise don't elicit the same cortisol response as high intensity ones do. And so if somebody is dealing with hypovolemic amenorrhea or hypovolemic dysfunction, like you kind of mentioned the irregular cycles, the light periods, not ovulating, um, lower intensity exercise is going to be a better bet for those individuals. Yeah. Up until I was probably like 20 to 23, like I always, always engaged in high intensity. And then once I went on this like period recovery journey, I completely switched to low intensity and I didn't exactly know what it was, but I could tell that I was holding on to a lot of inflammation. So I just really um, made a lot of lifestyle changes. I switched from coffee to matcha. I, you know, really tried to limit alcohol, 
prioritize sleep. Um, some people will say cut out gluten and dairy because they like are inflammatory triggers, but I feel like that really does not fit into the conversation that we're having in today because I just feel like any type of restriction and you could correct me if I'm wrong, but I just don't think um, the mentality that you are trying to um, push really has a space for that kind of restriction. If somebody is struggling with eating enough to support having a regular ovulatory cycle, putting more food restrictions on yourself is not going to be the thing that balances. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in addition to those things, I switched from high intensity to low intensity exercise. So I stopped running. I stopped doing the HIIT workouts. I strictly was walking and I found a love for Matt Pilates. And, you know, COVID kind of led me to this realization because we were almost forced to slow down. I was living in New York at the time. The gyms were closed. I can only work out before my job in finance where I had to be in at 630. The streets of New York were isolated and dark and not safe. So I didn't really have much to work with in my New York apartment. So I just found a love for Pilates. All to say it's been about, you know, two to three years of doing just walking and Pilates and still nothing. So my question is, is it possible to be doing too much low intensity exercises? Like it, it, there's still yeah. yeah room for error there. Yeah, there, it, there definitely is. So like in inside my group coaching program, I have some pretty like strict stipulations on specifics on intensity, duration, and mode of exercise for what I know works to bring people's periods back in under, you know, eight weeks. Um, and yes, there is a threshold even with the low intensity stuff. Yeah. So what are some signs that one might be seeing if they are trending in the right direction of regaining their period? Yeah. So I have a whole podcast episode on this and I don't know if you can link in your show notes or not. I can, I will. Yeah. So one of my earlier episodes, I think it's like episode 11. Um, I have five signs you're on the right track for getting your period back. And so these are kind of like sequentially what I see in my clients who are following my method and progressing through getting closer and closer to getting their period back. And so the first one is that you start to see an increase in appetite. So maybe initially it's hard for you to eat more food, but as you eat more, your digestion improves, your metabolism speeds up and you actually start to have those hunger hormones come back. And so what initially felt like too much food now feels like the right amount, or maybe we realize we even need more. So that's a great positive sign of recovery. Um, as you are eating more, your digestion typically improves. So a lot of my clients come into my program with a ton of digestive issues. And once we start to really start correcting the energy deficit and restoring energy balance, digestion actually starts to improve usually within about two to three weeks of eating enough. Um, so increase in appetite, improve digestion. And then the next one is as you start to eat more and you're doing it consistently is you'll usually start to see an increase in cervical mucus. And that is tied to estrogen levels rising as you continue to eat more and your body is continuing to do the hormonal cascade that it needs to, to get to ovulation, you'll start to see changes in the amount of cervical mucus and kind of the type and consistency. As you get closer to ovulation, you'll usually see kind of clear, stretchy, very, um, fertile cervical mucus looks kind of like a raw egg white. Like if you were to crack open an egg, not the yellow part, the clear part. Um, and then after you ovulate, we'll start to see additional signs of hormones and increased progesterone in particular. So you'll usually experience some breast tenderness, um, maybe some bloating, maybe some hormonal acne. And once we kind of get over the hump of ovulation, if you are able to confirm ovulation, we know that within the next two weeks or so you should see your period return. Okay. And I'm sure it varies, but generally speaking, like what is the timeline that you usually see with your clients from the moment that you guys start working together to when they regain their cycle? 
Yeah. So everybody kind of progresses through recovery at different paces. If someone were to be working with me and they literally do everything that I tell them to do 100 percent, eight weeks is about average with it being an average. Some people are going to get their period back in less than a month. Some people are going to take more like two to three months, um, but about seven and a half weeks is average for my clients. Okay. And I know this can be a little bit controversial. What is your opinion on using birth control as a way to get a period? So I think it's really important to know that birth control doesn't give you a period. What you are doing when you take the pill, and this is what I think most people are talking about when they're talking about hormonal birth control, is the combined estrogen and progestin pill. What you are doing is giving your body synthetic estrogen for 20 or some odd days, and then you are giving your body synthetic progesterone to trigger a withdrawal bleed. And so you can do that over and over and over and over and over again. And you are probably going to get a withdrawal bleed, which is not a real period. Um, If you go to your doctor and you say, I haven't had a period in nine months. And their answer is, we think you should go on birth control. You have autonomy to do that and to take that advice, but it is very important that you know that birth control is not bringing your period back. Why do they pose it as a solution then? I have like such, I mean, I have such a problem with this because I have been told that so many times and I have like quit off putting any hormonal substance in my body. But like the last time I went to my doctor, she prescribed me Provera, is it? It's like the 10 day pill that's supposed to help you kickstart a period. So it's not, you know, a solution that like it's going to be long-term, but she was like, I think this will put you on the right path. That's another myth. I have never seen that work for anyone. (laughs) Provera basically just tells your body that you have ovulated. And if you have built up a lining, you will shed that lining again, a withdrawal bleed. Provera does not fix the communication gap in between your brain and your ovaries. So if you get a withdrawal bleed from Provera, that is wonderful. You needed to shed that lining. We want to protect against endometrial cancer you are not going to then go on to have period after period after period and be able to get pregnant because of the Provera. Yeah, it's so frustrating. And I feel like that's why, you know, luckily people like you exist. And I would imagine a lot of the clients that come to you have already gone through kind of like the Western medicine traditional path, talking to their OBGYN, maybe seeing an endocrinologist and their efforts are futile for a reason. It's because they're not addressing the root cause. Right. Right. Yeah, definitely. And to answer your question about why is birth control still giving us a solution? It's a really good question. The thought process 20 years ago was that, okay, it is not good to not have estrogen. We are putting people at risk for cardiovascular disease, for brittle bones. It's not great for your mood. Like women need estrogen, right? So let's just give them this cheap, easy solution to give their body some estrogen. 20 years later, we know that giving birth control actually doesn't slow the decline that happens when you aren't getting your period. Um, I think it's better than nothing, but it's really not doing the job. If you were to lose your period when you were 18 years old and you were to take birth control for 10 years, you would still be losing bone mass at a very rapid rate. Not that much different than if you weren't on the pill having a period. Yeah. I just think there's so much misinformation around that. So I just am so thankful that you came on today. I know you have your own podcast. Do you want to say what it's called just so people can use it as a resource? 
Yeah. So first of all, if any of this content like resonates, I do have a podcast where I talk, it's called the period recovery and fertility podcast. And we talk about all things, disordered eating, all things, getting your cycle back, tracking your cycle, um, and preparing your body for fertility, whether that's your goal right now or 10 years in the future. And your page on Instagram, is it also the same handle? It is, it's food.freedom.fertility. Okay. I'm going to link everything below. Are you taking new clients right now? Or are you all booked up? Yeah. So I do a rolling enrollment in my phase one. We are pretty much occupied at capacity right now, but you know, I'm always like backfilling my wait list and it moves pretty quickly. So if someone is interested, um, you should absolutely apply. And I'd love to talk to you more and tell you about how it's helped. Well, thank you so much for your time. I can't wait to listen back to this episode just for myself um, and just all the information. It really gives us a lot to think about. um, And I think it's really important stuff. So I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks, Carly.